I don't know if you ever had a Christmas where somebody absolutely pegged you. Maybe they drew your name out of a hat. Maybe it was something your parents did. But they just, they knew what you needed maybe even more than you did. And it was one of those presents that you opened up. And the second that you saw it, you, was, you didn't even know that your life was missing it until you now had it. Or maybe you've been clever enough and loving enough to be one of these people at some point in time who just absolutely guessed somebody right. A thoughtfully given, well-timed gift introduces something into somebody's life that they didn't even know they always wanted or needed. Now we celebrate that symbolically through objects in Christmas, but the reality is that love can do this in a way that nothing else can. Love introduces us to worlds that we didn't even know were possible. Love opens up horizons that we didn't even know could exist. On September 5th, 1997, um, I met the love of my life that was going to change and transform me in ways that I didn't even know were possible. As I got drugged along on a blind date, double blind date with my roommate, and quickly met his date, who I preferred over mine, <laughs> I was so smitten by this woman, and as we got back to our room that night, falling asleep in our bunks at Dort College, I told my best friend, my roommate, dude, I'm totally going to marry your date. <laughs> and 20 years later, um, I'm still walking life with a woman who completely changes my life, and love does that. Love keeps changing you. Love keeps opening up new worlds that you did not know could ever possibly happen. Sometimes it comes at great cost. Um, fortunately, actually, it didn't cost me that friendship. I got to officiate his wedding later on, in case you're ever wondering. We maintain an amazing friendship that we do to this day. But that keeps happening. Further introduced into my life are children at different stages, and I didn't even know that you had, I had the capacity to love more until they're in your life, because you think that love sort of is this, you know, confined um, thing that you only have so much of, but what the kingdom of God introduces to us is that we realize that love actually has infinite capabilities and can expand, and there's always room for more love. You meet somebody new in this world, and your world can change in ways that you didn't even know were possible. When I fell in love, and when I met each of my children, I found everything that I never knew I always wanted. Now, if we can experience that in a broken form of human love, how much more so are we not celebrating that at Advent? When the Lord and Lords and the King of Kings, who formed you in your mother's womb and knew you before the foundations of the world, decided to give you a gift, he gave you something that you never knew you always needed and wanted. Not only every breath you would ever take would come from him, Every good thing that has ever happened has come through him and by him and for him. He controls all things. He is in all things. He's still changing and redeeming all things. And he knows you in a way that you don't even know yourself. And he knows possibilities for your life that you don't even dare to dream. That's the infinite gift of Christmas. It's the infinite gift of the God who now is with us and in us. And he is everything that we still don't know that we need and want. 
This time of year, we light candles at the front of our churches, and we celebrate in the liturgical calendar this season of Advent, and every week we use different words like faith and hope and peace and love. And so often these words are nostalgic for us. They symbolize and remind us of a time maybe when we were a kid and we came to church and we heard the Christmas story or we listened to an amazing choir like we did here a few minutes ago. And there are scents that come back to mind. Pine needles from Christmas trees. Feelings of walking in what it smells like in grandma's house over holiday season. These things all come back to us, but... When we are in Christ, these aren't just buzzwords full of nostalgia for us. It's faith in something that will open the door that tomorrow holds. It's a peace offered like nothing else the world could possibly give us in the midst of all of our fears and allows us to transcend the moments that we often feel paralyzed and stuck within. It's hope that springs eternal and permanent and finds a place in our life that tells us the kingdom of God will be here more tomorrow than it is today. And love that promises that it will always win. And it never fails. But like I said, it's often costly. And as we walk through the gospel of John, we begin to see that as God reveals this love to hearts that are hardened, they have a hard time receiving it. At times even outright rejected. Even those who claimed that they wanted him. Even those who claimed that they had been longing forever for this. Couldn't recognize that what their hearts had always longed for. And instead they choose at times to remain in fear. Rather than enter into the unknown of freedom. The cost that we see it take on the life of Christ himself and as his reputation and ministry unfolds already in chapter 8 as we are now in the gospel of John. Chapter 8 starts off as you remember with the woman who's caught in adultery. People are ready to cast stones at her whereas Jesus steps in and begins an amazing ministry to her where he confronts her and challenges her and introduces her to a hope and a future and a tomorrow that was so different than the past that she had known and yet by the time the same chapter ends, those same stones are now being picked up and ready to be thrown at Jesus himself as he willingly trades places with the woman. In the incarnation, we are reminded again and again that the love of God came to take our place too. To stand where we've been accused. To stand in place of all the things that we have done. I want to talk to you about that story and how that dialogue continues to unfurl and the fears that we have contradicted with the peace that he offers. I'm going to read from John chapter 8. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teachings, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be free? Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, and yet you are looking for a way to kill me. 
because you have no room for my word. I am telling you what I have seen in the Father's presence, and you are doing what you have heard from your father. Abraham is our father, they answered. If you were Abraham's children, Jesus said, then you would do what Abraham did. As it is, you are looking for a way to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the works of your own father. We are not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I have come here from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. For there is no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks his native language. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I am telling the truth, why don't you believe me? Whoever belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teachings. This passage opens up with an if-then clause. There's a process and a sequencing to what happens when we begin to follow and to lean into his word. This word hold is translated elsewhere or in different translations, even in the same passages, to remain, to continue, to abide, to stick with and live out. It's the same word that Jesus says in the farewell discourse in John 15, and you know these verses well. Eleven times in seven verses, this same verb comes up, this word of great importance to Jesus that opens up possibilities and futures that otherwise would not exist for the human race. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit unless it must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you're like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown in the fire, and burned. But if you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is my Father's glory, that you would bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. And as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands, and remain in his love. Eleven times in seven verses packed in there, just remain, just stay the course, just stay. Regardless of what's swirling on around you, this is where you need to find your home. This is where you need to incarnate. This is where you need to abide and to dwell and to spend your time because it's here where you will find everything you never knew that you always wanted. And it can open up possibilities in your imagination in ways that nothing else in the world can do. Only the truth can do this. Then you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. If you hold to my teaching, then you will know the truth. If, then. You see, truth opens up futures and possibilities, but 
Every lie actually does the exact opposite and closes them off. You remember, ever remember when you were a kid telling a lie? I thought about that this week and I could have recalled actually embarrassingly too many times that I remember as a kid telling a lie. And then I remember all the work it took to continue in that lie. And it's a lot of work to lie. And there are certain things that I had to remember about the lie that I told because the next time it came up in conversation I was confined by the words that I had already said because they were false and they were not true. Whereas if I would have spoken the truth there would have been freedom in that moment but there wasn't. The father of lies is masterful at lying to us. See, lies are so confining. They imprison us. Not just the ones that you speak, but the ones that are spoken about you. When the evil one and the accuser comes and speaks lies to you, they confine you and they restrain you. They suck you of life and potency and possibility because they discourage you. They steal life. Lies hold us back from possibilities that we don't know. But if you will know the truth, the truth will set you free. I believe that there is a greater freedom for every single one of us than any one of us have ever yet known. For every time another sin is broken down, every time the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit takes another step in our life, new possibilities open up. You see, lies also restrain us and they imprison us. Look at this lie the people of Israel believed. Then they answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and we have never been slaves to anyone. Which is really interesting because you think that Jesus at this point in time could have been like, Well, what about the 430 years in Egypt that were, you remember the whole story in the Old Testament? Okay, yeah, yeah, if you take out the 430 years, we've never been slaves to anyone. What about 722 when the Assyrians came in and conquered you and then drug you off into slavery and embarrassed you before the world? Okay, well, if you take out Egypt and Assyria, we've never been slaves to anyone. I listen to Erwin McManus unpack this passage, and he's telling this, and I was thinking, I've never even read that about this before. That's exactly what's happening. I, I've, not, I've been taken in and just sort of glossed over this, realizing that Jesus could have called this out. But it keeps going. There was more slavery. What about in 587 when the Babylonians came in and then conquered them and drug them off? Okay, so if you take out Egypt and the Assyrians and the Babylonians and then the Maccabees that came later and now those Roman guards that are standing over there with swords that we're actually kind of enslaved to don't really have freedom. If you take away all that, I am a free man, Jesus. You see, they're more blinded and binded by their own sin than they even realize. And this is what sin does. This is the lie that it creates. Freedom from slavery and the fact that God delivered them from that was supposed to be their nationally identifying moment. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there was no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. God has just enacted the ten plagues before this moment. This is right before the Red Sea gets parted, but how short our memory is. Isn't this true in all of our lives, though? Our memories of fear are more long-lasting than our memories of freedom. 
This is the problem with living inside of a sinful world, is that the sinful lies of the evil one that are spoken to you and over you often have greater impact than the amount of truth that we come back to and find in God's word. And they're lies that we believe. They've sunk into us. You are not who the accuser says you are. Now, I'm probably going to say a bunch of things inside this sermon today that you've all heard before. I don't know if I'm saying anything, actually, that you've never heard before. We come back and worship and back before the word to remind ourselves that there are two competing narratives that are fighting for the allegiance of our hearts and our lives. And one is built on fear and shame and lies. And the other one is truth. And you keep asking yourself, why do I keep choosing the shame and the lies and the fear in the midst of my sin that I hate when freedom is offered to me? You ever wondered that? This is like the bulk of my devotional life, by the way, wondering that and wrestling through that with God. Why am I still here? Why am I still going round and round and round on all this stuff? See, original sin actually punctures even our subconscious. It affects us in ways that we don't even want to acknowledge. I'm reading an amazing book right now by Bessel Vandercock called The Body Keeps the Score, and it talks about how our bodies actually metabolize Fear, and we're basically all living out of this PTSD of the sin and trauma and hard things that we've experienced in life. And we don't even acknowledge how much it's affecting the decisions that we make or the person that we see looking back at us in the mirror or the possibilities that are in front of us. Because these lies cloud us and the hard things that we've been through can in fact actually fracture our memories and, and stay inside of our being and change the way that we open our eyes to look into a moment. We are all stuck in some sort of spiritual Stockholm syndrome where we are more dictated in our decisions by our fears than by our freedom that is offered us in Christ. And this is one of the effects of sin, that it has a longer memory of fear than it does of freedom. And the Israelites experienced this. They watched ten miraculous plagues and then they come before the Red Sea, and they're like, we should have just died in Egypt or just stayed there. We would have rather had slavery. Better the fear we knew than the freedom we don't. You see, you and I don't have the capacity to imagine a tomorrow that is fully alive in Christ in the same way that we do because of the experience we've had in sin already in our past. And so we stay there. We stay enslaved there. We stay bound there. But this is what the gospel of Jesus Christ teaches. It's why Jesus is so adamant to his disciples when he's about to take off. He's like, just stay in this stuff. Stay in the story. Look at me. Stay Eyes on me. Don't look around you. Just stay with me here. And this is what the purpose of our devotional practices are. This is why we pray. This is why we sing. This is why we worship. This is why you sacrifice money to go to a Christian school. So you can have the story told over you and over you and over you. And you can start to take it in deeper and dispel the lies that get spoken over you. And every one of you are lied to every day by the evil one. And it has its effect on us and it's working its way out. The ten plagues have all happened to deliver them. And they stand before the Red Sea. They don't even know it's possible. And then God opens it up. And they walk to the other side. And you would think now at that moment, now they've seen God's miraculous drowning of an entire army. The greatest army of the world gets drowned. And you would think at that point in time, you'd be like, okay, I guess he's got our back, right? Three chapters later, but the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to make us thirst and our children and livestock die of thirst? And Moses really could have been like, remember like the ten plague thing and the whole drowning the army and the sea? Like, 
God's got a track record here. But again, we forget. Three chapters later, again, they stand at the foot of Mount Sinai where, again, they'll forsake God. But this is how the Ten Commandments start. Never dawned on you before? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Can you hear that this Advent season again still from the God who's still delivering you? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of sin. I'm the Lord your God who will bring you out of every fear. Very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And when that happens, look what happens later on, he tells them. So you, and then when that happens, you have no room for my word. There's an if-then clause here too, isn't there? Remaining in his word and what he tells us opens opportunities and freedoms. But the opposite is also effect. Sin closes off future and possibilities. If you were Abraham's children, Jesus said, then you would do what Abraham did. This is the most confusing line I came across in this passage. What do you think he means? What is it that Abraham did that they should be modeling? One commentator I was reading through said it, and I, I was, it was one of those aha moments where you're like, that's what he's talking about. For people who knew the story so well, when God came and visited Abraham in Genesis chapter 18 by the great trees of Mamre, and the three strangers came to visit him, how does Abraham respond when God shows up? He gets water to wash their feet. He sends a servant to go get the calf. It was the choice prized calf in his flock. And he tells Sarah to get three seeds of the finest of flour and start baking bread. Like we're going to put on a production for these because he's ready to welcome. He has a hospitality in his soul for the possibilities of what God will create. And I think Advent is supposed to challenge us with a question inside. Do we have a hospitality of soul? An openness for whatever it is that God has for us. For possibilities that we haven't yet dreamed. I think that's the challenge of Advent. Not did you receive Jesus once in a sinner's prayer? Or were you baptized in front of your church? Or did you stand up and say a profession of faith? Those are all beautiful things. But Jesus came to do this again and again and again every day. And there are still places where we are captive. And we are blind to our sin. And we are binded by our sin and he's just saying, oh, I got more for you, kid. I got so much more for you yet. You don't even have to know what those possibilities are. You just have to know me. Eyes up here. Look at me. Keep looking at me. Don't look down. Don't look aside. I got you. You're mine. Stay with me. I'll do it again. Will you rise and receive a parting blessing? May your faith remain in the only one who can give you freedom. May your peace be found in the only one who sacrificed his life to give it for you. May your hope spring eternal. And may you know that love will always win. In your life and in this world. Go in peace to love and serve that kind of king. Amen.